thank you for being thank you for being here virtually uh, with us this afternoon for the impact of amenity apps on the tenant experience. If you could all please turn your cameras off, which most of you have, and mics on mute, except for the panelists and moderator, of course, so that we can focus our attention. Uh, my name is Erin Saban, and I'm a real estate design strategy director at Gensler, and I'm really excited about our panel today. I want to start off by thanking our moderator and panelists, the Berman Group and Cornet, for hosting this event. Before we get started, I wanna make sure that you're all aware of some other amazing upcoming Cornet events that are taking place in the next few weeks so that you're aware. On April 7th, the PropTech and Sustainability Committees will be co-hosting a panel on the topic, how companies are using technology to develop their ESG strategies, which will take place in person, which is really exciting moderated by Thomas Bade Matheson, chairman of SWITCH, with speakers Peter Clark, managing director of energy and sustainability from CBRE, David Wynn, CPO from Greenstone, and Noel Bolin, senior product manager um, from Measurable. On April 12th, another very topical subject, understanding the metaverse will be held virtually moderated by Laura Patel, Managing Director of Business Analytics from CBRE. The panelists will include Victor Delanoy, Principal from BCG's Web3 and Metaverse Initiative, Jim Kessler, Global Tech Leader of VR from Jacobs, Ram uh, Srinivasan, Managing Director of Consulting from JLL, and Guy Messick, Director of Design Intelligence from IA Interior Architects. And last update, if you haven't done so already, please sign up for the Cornet Global Eastern Symposium on June 14th, hosted by Drexel University in Philadelphia. And I know that you're all eager to get into the content. So as the event progresses and questions come up, feel free to drop them into the chat and we'll try to get them, get to them at the end of our Q&A uh, from all of you and I'll filter through them. So with that, I want to introduce you to our moderator and my colleague at Gensler, James Wynn. He's the director of our Intelligent Places practice, where he focuses on developing scalable long-term strategies for our connected places practice and applied research streams. His focus is on early stage venture-backed startups and large-scale enterprise innovation, where he leverages data to integrate big design ideas into strategic objectives. So James? Uh, welcome. Thank you. Hey, guys. Um, super excited to be here. Thank you for that kind intro, Aaron. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's sort of cliche to say I'm excited to be here, but I'm actually excited to be here. Uh, so excited. I'm doing this from my vacation. So I think that should sort of underscore, like, how, um, how excited I am to dig into this topic with this incredible group of experts that we have brought together, which I have to say really... I think um, underscores Cornet's importance in the built environment ecosystem that they were able to pull together this incredible group uh, to talk today. And so I'm gonna introduce everyone and then we'll sort of dive right in. Um, so we're joined today by uh, Vardan Chowdhury who uh, is a VP of investments at JBG Smith. Um, many of you probably know JBG Smith, but of particular interest to the topic today is the work they're doing at National Landing just outside DC which uh, is very much in the news as the future home of Amazon HQ2 and the uh, University of Virginia's 
uh, billion dollar innovation campus. And some of the work that they're doing there is truly groundbreaking from a smart city perspective. Um, also joined by Scott Mori, who is responsible for technology at WeWork. Uh, Scott's got a fascinating background, having sort of looked at this industry from a consulting perspective, from a finance perspective, and now from the unique vantage point that WeWork uh, gives. Um, and last, but, but absolutely not least, uh, Joe Stokes, who is the um, basically head of digital uh, operations technology at CBRE and has a background in app development. So super relevant to this conversation. So welcome guys. Um, let's dive right in. Uh, as Aaron mentioned, you know, send your questions in in the chat and we've allocated a pretty good amount of time to talk about that. So um, what I wanted to sort of start us off with is you know, sort of where, where do we see the state of the uh, prop, tech, prop tech app world today? Um, a lot of investments gone on, gone in. There's a lot of interesting things happening. We're already starting to see a bit of consolidation, which is typical for an industry like this, but it's also really early days. So I thought maybe, Joe, you could start us off having um, some real direct experience, both as a developer and a uh, purchaser of these kinds of technologies. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, James, and and thank you for having me. Uh, look, I, I think, I, without being hyperbolic, I think you know it's bloated. The industry is bloated. I think it's crowded. I think it's noisy. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of players in the market at the moment, and so I think it's making it very difficult for clients to choose you know reliable, uh, trustworthy you know, technologies that actually deliver value and also deliver on the actual problems uh, that clients are trying to solve for. Uh, and so I think all the jobs that they're trying to get done. And so I think, you know, I think there's a lot, you know, uh, a lot of rocks and diamonds. You know, there are a lot of players out there that are, um, are very good. And there's certainly a lot of technologies that are doing some really exciting things that will absolutely move the needle in real estate. Uh, both on the occupier side, um, the construction side, and of course the owner landlord side. So I think um, it's an exciting time to be in property technology. I think it's also, uh, as I say, a very uh, a busy time to be in technology just because of the sheer volume of capital flowing into the, into the space and the number of players that are out there either trying to you know, capitalise on that capital or um, you know, to genuinely solve some problems for real estate uh, you know, industry in general. So I neglected to mention this in the intro, but we're, you know, jump in at the, at the, at the earliest convenience, you know, we're going to keep it kind of loose. <laughs> I had an ambulance going gone by, so I, I didn't want to say anything. It's since I've been in New York, it's since past. I mean, I think I'll, I mean, I, you both are saying kind of the same things too. We're at a level of maturity that the investment still seems relatively strong. I feel like we have less transparency the last couple of years over the amount and the volume. We had great statistics coming in, I think, pre kind of COVID. Um, 90 something percent of these companies are going to go under. And I think back to, to been around a while in the late 90s was the first real push, right? Going over into 2000. I think at the time I was tracking like 300, we didn't call prop tech then companies, but effectively in the same categories. And I don't think, I think only one or two of them survived you know, out of that list. And I think that we're all seeing going back, James, to your point on consolidation, it's got to be a platform level play. And it's so hard on the buying side to really understand where the value propositions are. And so what we were seeing, I think, is some traditional players 
that are purchasers, depending on what your category is. So you'd say <laughs> MRI or Yardy or whatever, but then you, know, you take other ones going around, whether that was you know BTS or HQO, or there's a bunch of these on different categories that are now well-funded that are placing larger bets that are more likely to succeed because of the sort of expansiveness of the platform, what they're offering. And then more importantly, you know, the awareness they're able to create and, and the engagement as a result. And I feel like we're right on that turn, right? We're seeing that in the last two years, but COVID kind of put us sideways a little bit in general. And, and I think we'll see more of that going forward. And, you know, from, from my perspective, certainly agree with Joe and actually how Scott, you framed it out in terms of the data. I hadn't thought about that, but that makes a ton of sense. You know, for us at JBG Smith, we actually um, have some exposure to prop tech and, and uh, venture funds that focus on urban tech and just this world of real estate tech. And I think what we're finding is that certainly what Joe said is, is absolutely right. There's a lot of capital chasing um, perhaps uh, real problems or, or a lot, and or just a lot of technology looking for problems to solve. But generally, generally I think, you know, I, I fundamentally believe there's a secular trend towards the merging of the physical and digital world. And our industry from construction all the way to the owner-occupied owner occupied side, as well as REITs like us that are totally vertically integrated are, you know, fundamentally behind the curve in, in technology adoption. So it, you know, sort of makes sense to me that there's so much capital chasing um, sort of the next generation of technology. Uh, for us in national landing, I think what we're finding is um, the role that we can play is really fundamental fundamental uh, enablers of, of prop tech and, and urban tech or smart cities tech, all of these being sort of big buzzwords. But really, if, if you need to deploy any sort of solution or technology that's actually going to be impactful to either the owner or the customer, the end tenant, um, having some sort of prerequisite infrastructure in place um, can radically simplify that deployment. And so, you know, eager to talk more about that, James, throughout the day. Uh, but I think it's an interesting time to be in the space. Yeah, I think actually, I mean, you guys are approaching it from a very interesting perspective because of the scale of particularly the national landing development. You know, for those of you who don't know, I, you should correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe it's roughly the same size as downtown Seattle. So we compare it, to a, we compare it in a couple ways. Um, so we geographically, it's about the size of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which is, as many of you know, up, up in, you know, the New York, um, as a New York borough of Brooklyn, Williamsburg being a neighborhood, it's obviously quite large. Um, National Landing is, is sort of at that sort of mini city or city scale. From an office market standpoint, to look at it from a square footage perspective, we have the same office density as downtown Austin and the CBD of Austin. So we do really have unprecedented scale, James, to your point, under you know centralized control. Uh, and that scale has afforded us the opportunity to sort of think a little bit differently about how we can put our own capital to work um, rather than sort of one vertical development at a time, instead of, you know, thinking of it in, in sort of a piecemeal approach, really thinking about neighborhood scale investments. And, um, you know, chief among those investments are really what we call digital infrastructure. So what we realized early on is that um, left to its own devices, the traditional uh, telecom providers, the traditional infrastructure providers don't deliver neighborhood networks at the type of sort of scale and density and with the with the level of sort of open access and choice that we think is important for 
the next generation of office tenants, but also the next generation of retailers and the next generation of people who live in our apartment buildings, who want choice, who want quality of service, who want competitive prices, and also who want all sorts of next generation technology that actually impacts um, how they have a seamless experience throughout, you know, moving from one building to the other or paying for things in the neighborhood. And all of that technology, ultimately, as you look at the stack of deployment, typically the lowest common denominator is, um, other than cost, of course, is, is network and availability of, of fiber, wireless capabilities, um, edge compute capabilities. And so we sort of looked at that and we stepped in as an orchestrator. And so we're, we're investing upwards of $60 million in a digital infrastructure platform across the neighborhood uh, where JBG is coming in and laying the rails, sort of laying the foundation from fiber to um, provisions for 5G to edge data centers and even privately owned spectrum to uh, basically break that chicken and the egg problem of you know, all this promise of smart cities and urban tech and prop tech uh, and, and you know, bringing that to life. I think if I add to that, I mean, obviously there's an, there's an economic right proposition to it. I think what's so intriguing with yours, if I go back in time and we talk about large scale mixed use developments way back, I think about what Korean land housing was doing, right? Within Korea, we get a lot of press. There were certain places globally, right? That would get press. And then you see, I think about companies over time that were there like Irvine, Irvine company, right? It's a great example. Or take what Crusoe is doing at Grove on a small scale in some ways. But what's most interesting about this space right now, if you look at capital flow relative to development, I think the majority of the money actually is going to mixed use development. And then you ignore that for a second for the public companies were rewarded for specialization. And now they're getting a little bit more rewarded for diversification, initially being driven by some of the folks on the retail because it was a tougher environment. So you take companies, I won't go by name, but public REITs in New York or other places, Three years ago, I had no multifamily units. They might have three or 5,000 multifamily units. So we're in this really interesting part where that managing those asset classes and even the subsets, it's a different conversation, like within multifamily, the ranges, right? It could be an Airbnb in one unit, traditional in the other, but it's taking us down this really interesting path around how you manage those relationships and then use digital in a way, it could be revenue generating in some ways, it's gotta add value but also ultimately about engagement and experience in a way that in your case, you'd say Ronnie, uniquely positions your property because the way you're approaching it more so than anyone else can today, you're in such a unique spot. And the rest of us are in some ways, I'm pure office, right? And the scheme is in flex, so it's different. I can perfect the category, but anyone that's cross category because it's done historically over time, right? They're in this really kind of challenging spot around how do I maximize that and create the value on the cross asset class in a way that's meaningful, right? And, and that's the most fascinating part, I think, of the puzzle. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think that's absolutely right. And in fact, um, you know, we've been heartened to be working with our partners over to, at, at Gensler, you know, James and Aaron and team on actually thinking through uh, from a design and service concept standpoint, what are the sort of very specific um, unique points in a journey or journeys of people who actually traverse through a mixed use environment, because to your point, Scott, it is different than just having an experience in an office or a flex office um, space versus just in a residential space. And given our scale and control and the mixed use environment, you know, we really think of it as a microcosm for any urban place, because in addition to, you know, vertical developments of 
resi office with ground floor, floor retail, we also have private parks that are being developed. We're building the water park in National Landing, as we call it, sort of like an outdoor Pond City Market or um, outdoor uh, Chelsea Market of sorts. Sparkman Wharf is a good example out in Tampa. But it's really going to be a vibrant place where people are going to be drinking and eating and watching live performances and maybe doing an outdoor yoga class. And that's part of the, of the neighborhood experience. And so we've been working you know, diligently with Gensler and some other consultants to really think through where technology can kind of be additive to that experience. And I'll give you one tangible example. You know, imagine if I live in one of our residential properties, but want to access an amenity that happens to be in a different property that's either a residential property or an office property or some sort of shared amenity center. In order for that to get delivered, you really need to start blending the digital and the physical world. We need to understand, all right, well, Scott has access to a certain building at a certain time versus Joe or Aaron or James who have access to different parts of the neighborhood at different times. There's a hardware play in terms of seamless access control because no one wants to fiddle around with four different fobs. Um, and so we're, we're really you know, focused on that from a consumer standpoint. But I'd also say, you know, Scott, I think your point is spot on in terms of um, how the street rewards us. You know, we're publicly traded and there is a lot of, I think, um, you know, focus on specializing, but where we see a lot of uh, value or what we get excited about is specializing for industry 4.0. And I think, you know, for some that may be a buzzword for us, we sort of think of it as um, truly the fourth industrial revolution being upon us as it's defined by sort of this merging of the physical and digital technologies like the internet of things, artificial intelligence, edge computing, the future of extended reality, autonomy, all of that is sort of definitional to the fourth industrial revolution. And just like there are other, you know, real estate companies that have been the home of biotech, um, have been the home of other industries, we want to be the home of Industry 4.0. And, um, and we think that if we can sort of be the home of the next generation of the economy, that'll have sort of economic, uh, we'll, we'll benefit from the economic windfalls of rising real estate prices. So I think I think we should you know it's interesting. I want to pivot a little bit into like what what can these technologies do for us? So that was a great transition. And and one way to think about it, which I hadn't really thought about until we started talking, is scale is a really interesting lens to this problem, right? So from CBRE, you know, giant scale and reach. You know, Scott, I think you mentioned you know on any given day you have something like eleven thousand conference rooms occupied. If I remember that number correctly, you know, uh, Bardon, you talked about the scale of you know national landing. I mean, certainly at Gensler, we're a global company, we see almost everything there is to see. Uh, and then on the flip side, you've got you know, let's just use app as a sort of stand-in for the you know venture-backed, early-stage, cutting-edge technology startup, which is sort of by definition subscale. And I, I think that mismatch is a really interesting problem for the industry and a place where we can start to look at, you know, what, what can these tools actually do for us now and what's missing to make them more impactful? Joe, you, you said it earlier. I mean, someone did. It, it's logical. It makes sense. It's, you know, the value proposition, the business cases, and there's a lot of shiny objects. And so for the less informed on the space, it's easy to, to, to chase, right? And, but there's a fundamental theme, I think, James, in general, across all asset classes, but it fits within ours, and office specifically more so than ever because the last two years. And it predates that, Joe. I know you at one point were with Equium, right, which is in the same category. It's about engagement. And, but, but engagement has to come with a value proposition to drive that. 
And it's tough as a landlord, meet up in these brand conversations and relationship conversations with the people in your space. But fundamentally, we know, in my view, use retail as the example, right? Like my, my, my belief is the 2013 year holiday season was the fundamental shift that put the consumer in complete control. You had Google just part of that and Amazon doing, you know, $5 delivery. And there was all these really dynamic models and channels that were technology enabled. And now we're all in complete control, right? We could order it and have it delivered in an hour. We can pick it up. We can have it shipped to our house. And COVID effectively empowered everyone on this call, every one of us actually, on how we want to work. And the demands were heard that we don't want to work the same way. We want to work in a different format. And now not just, it's just about we were coming, but right, there's multiple formats like ours and high growth positioned people better for that flexibility. So for us, it's like whether you want a conference room or an office or desk or event space by the hour or day or week, we don't care. We're just happy to be able to provide that format. But I think the more fundamental parts is really about the empowerment of the individual relative to the office. And I don't think that changes. I think in the exact same thing that what we see ourselves in retail is where we are today in the office. Multifamily was already there. They were really good at engagement and people paid and did stuff online. Industrial is a different conversation, right? And I think that's the turning point. So James, I come back, it's the, the value proposition. I'm lucky going to your point. Yeah, I've got 700 locations, 600,000 members. I got 14,000 video conference rooms, 12,000 HP printers. I got one access control means globally. I'm in this really unique spot where people are sort of forced to engage in me. Having said that, from my NPS scores, it looks like it's a positive experience, <laughs> but, but that's the challenge we're all trying to solve in different ways, I think. And, and, and we talk about amenities, which means different things, different people, right? And scheme of things, but we all want to add value and create value for our companies as well, but add value to our customers and, and digital and technology is driving right now those innovations. And, yeah. and that's, that's where we're at. I, I couldn't agree more with you, Scott. I think, you know, the, the sort of phrase we use is, you know, the locus of control is only heightening with the individual. I think, you know, if you look back, you know, it always used to be with the developer or the investor and the, the landlord and, and that shift to occupier, the occupier. And I think, um, you know, COVID has certainly accelerated that downward, you know, trend to the individual being, that point of control. And, and what that's led to is a lot of technologies that are geared at the individual, but not necessarily solving challenges for the occupier or for the investor or for the developer. And so there's a lot of technologies coming out in the, what I would say, the consumer space, that end user um, that aren't necessarily, um, how do I say, tipping their hat to the needs that they're not just the only stakeholder that they need to be having a conversation with. And I think, um, you know, for anyone out there either creating apps or, or, you know, procuring things, I think it's really important that, you know, the technologies, you know, the problems that technology is solving, um, you know, really depends on what the problems is that you want solved. And I think it's the application of those technologies to jobs to be done or problems to be solved. Um, you know, that's the most important piece, I think. Um, but I think to your point, um, James, when you opened it up around scalability is, is leveraging that technology to solve problems, whether it be um, globally, if you're, if you're a large organization and a multinational, um, you know, reusable so that, you know, that, you know, when code is created, that it's not just thrown out the door or at the window, it can be reapplied 
um, and thinking about um, things from that perspective. And then I would just say, you know, technology is not the be all and end all. And I think it's very important for everyone to appreciate that, you know, I think the, the people and place are the other kind of key elements of, you know, people, place and the technology um, put together is really, you know, how we think about um, the segments of the pie. And I think without um, the right people and the right, you know, engagement at that level, um, the technology falls pretty quickly on its, you know, on its face. And so, and likewise, you know, Scott's, you know, point, and to be honest, Vardan in terms of national landing, if you're not getting the actual infrastructure in the place right, um, it's, it's a waste of money and time. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a specific example that I think would be curious to hear you guys talk about, which is, you know, I think we've made great strides in IoT and sensor-based um, understanding of, let's say, utilization, right? So pre-COVID, that was kind of like a thing people knew about, you know, post-COVID, it seems to be just about everywhere, you know, but then so what is the really interesting problem? Like now, you know, you know, conference room B is yellow most of the time, like, what do you do with that information? It's one of the challenges, right? Is like technology in some ways you're trying to institutionalize some type of behavior in a way. And so that one's the case of analytics where there's insights. Again, I don't know what you do with the yellow conference room, but you know, there's other ones as well. We see off all these sensors and it can be somewhat overwhelming. And, and, and how do you find a way to use that in a meaningful, constructive fashion? We're still such in the early stages, I think whatever data set, right? Whether that's building control systems or utilization or geolocation information, or even take augmented information relative to our customer base and try to understand how we're different generically, right? I feel like that. I used to say, James, you heard me say this, we met before. I used to say technology and real estate was an oxymoron. <laughs> now, I, I, think we're, I think we're beyond that, but we do trail in some ways. In some ways you could argue we're ahead in some places and behind on others, but it's, it's such a challenging space. And it goes back to the very beginning of this call why there's so much money coming in. I mean, that first cycle in the late 90s, the investment was probably one one hundredth of what it was now, right? But if you recall, some may, you know, like on the mall guys dropped billions actually on putting fiber in their properties, if you recall that, right? And uh, there was broadband office now on the office category. And there was a lot of, you know, a fair amount of money. Um, but I think the difference actually in the cycles is um, so much investment has been done around each of us operate internally better, right? It's a pretty mature space, like how we do lease accounting or property account, facility management or sort of those categories. And because many companies have that base, it enables us to extend out now and collaborate and do things we couldn't before. Because I always say if you try to automate something externally. If internally you're slow or inaccurate, it doesn't work. If I'm fast and accurate or right, or really slow but accurate, like, but we've solved those problems, I think, on internal processes. So whether that's marketing or sales or ops or development or something, we're now in this means to extend out and collaborate unique ways. And that's what the money's coming in for, I think, in many cases. And so again, going back to this topic, we're talking about engagement with our customers, but I think um as you were saying earlier, whether I'm a developer and your outside partners in the development process or in each stage, you're collaborating in ways probably that historically people weren't able to, right? That's because the foundation of JVG, and I know Jeremy really well, by the way, he's a good guy. Um, but, but we've put a lot of that technology behind us, right? On the inside of the house. And now we're at this great point to extend it.
Yeah, I think that that that's exactly right. And I'll tell Jeremy uh, that we we met today on this on this panel, Scott. Um, you're right, great guy. Uh, so, you know, I I think you know, I'm just looking at James, I really like your question about the monitoring. Um, you know, one thing I we're increasingly grappling with is. Um, similar to what you just posed, like, okay, great, we can measure and monitor certain things, but how do we extend that to then actually interacting with the consumer? Like what's a little bit perhaps more interesting for us in, in our context, I'm not taking anything away from monitoring or getting the yellow light or red light on a conference room, but I think we're more excited about back to the amenity booking um, use case or journey. If, if I want to go and, you know, have a, uh, have a good time playing basketball with some friends in a shared amenity center, I, it would be nice to know when that's available, whether it's available right now, and if I could actually book it and make sure that I have access, like physical access to it, because ultimately I think expectations, you know, it sounds trite and probably we've all said it, but Netflix, Uber, these sort of tech companies that have thrived in, um, in sort of the previous wave of technology as driven by frankly, the 4G revolution, now, as we move forward, you know, those companies have set the expectation for how customer experiences should work in the digital realm. And I think the challenge we're going to have in the physical realm is applying digital technology that's as frictionless or as beautiful, as elegant, as joyful, but really as frictionless um, for technology in, in the built environment. Like the worst thing that could happen, I think, is if you have some sort of you know, fob replacement via a mobile app and all of a sudden you're stuck in your elevator bank just saying, okay, well, is this, is this, am I getting in or am I not? It's something that's not, it's not working really well. Um, but I think we all want to move away from the fob as an example. Um, the only way I think it's really going to work is if we have a truly seamless deployment of that digital and physical um, um, integration. Yeah. So here's a perennial question that um, I think is, sort of a classic if you've spent any time in technology, which is the, the build by question. Um, but I think it's particularly relevant for our industry right now um, because a lot of these new solutions are so subscale. And you know, if you just think about it from, let's say a large office occupier perspective, you know, they're gonna be in 15 different buildings in 15 different cities with 15 different you know, smart elevator systems with 15 different buildings, security access systems. I mean, the, the, the number of components of this ecosystem gets really, really large, really, really quickly. So how do you think about when does it make sense to roll your own? And when does it make sense to sort of hand your fate over to uh, venture-backed startups, um, you know, agenda? Um, and I think, Joe, you might be in the best position to answer that yeah, first. Yeah, I, I, I was just... <laughs> jumping at the bit to, to get in on that. But look, I, I think it's a great question. I think it's a, it's a conundrum all of us face, like regardless of whether you're an app developer, like at the end of the day, you still have technology needs that need to either be bought, borrowed or, um, or built. And, you know, look, I think the way I think about it from a build perspective is, you know, if it's core business and it's strategic, it adds value. And, and you know, I certainly think about differentiation and ROI, you know, if it ticks all those boxes, then absolutely you should be building. And, and I think if you've got the capabilities as well, then that's, you know, a sort of a, an extra push over the, the finish line. I think where you, buy, where you buy or borrow is when it isn't any of those, or if it doesn't tick at least the majority of those. And I think, um, I think people need to take 
a, a firm view on it uh, in terms of what is the purpose, like what, what is the purpose of their business um, and what, what is core. And, and what I mean specifically by that is, you know, if, if you're in the business of, I don't know, making widgets, is it, does it make sense for you to build your own accounting platform? It probably doesn't, right? Unless those widgets are, you know, accounted for in some seemingly unique way, then I just don't think that that makes any sense. And so I think it's, I think it's really important that that's the sort of lens people take when they, when when they go down this path. And I think, to be honest, you've got to be disciplined about it, and you've got to be thinking about the long term because I think a lot of people think, oh yeah, I'll build that, you know, that capability or that feature or that functionality. And they're not thinking about what happens in one year, in three years, in five years, when that code is now eroded or, you know, things have changed and then you don't have the development resources to continue that and you're going to end up going back and buying or borrowing. And so I think it's really important to be disciplined about applying those lenses and making the call and sticking with it, despite what all the noise might be out there around you um, influencing you otherwise. Yeah, I think, Joe, that's really well said. Um, I Just to piggyback off of that, I, uh, I think you've got to, to your point, be really critical in thinking through where you can really excel. And, uh, you know, I think we've seen, as an example, technology companies um, masquerading as developers and doesn't go well. And, you know, alternatively, I, I think gen generally speaking, uh, developers uh, are unlikely to have the capacity, even if you can get it built to your point to run it. Um, you know, if you're thinking about the, the manpower, the, um, the, the capacity required to operate and, and maintain software solutions is, um, you know, it's, a, it's very specialized. There's, then that, that's sort of why I think the marketplace ends up um, resulting in rewards going to those who specialize in software or, or hardware integrations. Um, with that said, I, I think for us, and I, I know I'm harping on this intersection between the digital and physical worlds, but one of the ways we've started to think about build versus buy is kind of thinking through what, um, what we wanted to not replicate, in other words. Um, so we don't want to rebuild or sort of compete with best-in-class solutions that already exist for different, very discrete uses or experiences like access control. It's unlikely that we're gonna go and build a new door lock, but there are best-in-breed door locks that exist that are technologically enabled and either through NFC or now increasingly through Apple integrations have that digital interface. You have best-in-breed POS systems that allow for integration for payments and some sort of way that we can make payments more seamless for our customers. We're not also not gonna go rebuild a really robust CRM solution that exists off the shelf to let us understand and build profiles for people and have that tie back into our property management and asset management teams. But I think that what we're also struggling with as an, as an industry and maybe you know us specifically at JVG, what we're working through is how do you integrate um, existing systems? How do you integrate software solutions like CRM uh, products that you might buy off the shelf and, you know, use as a SaaS solution uh, with a, a hardware solution that's at the unit or, or in the building. 
And um, so I, I could see there being, you know, buy a lot of buy decisions for specific off the shelf software and hardware. And I, I think systems integration and an integration layer is, is really what is um, required as a glue to hold together some of these experiences that, um, that I'm not sure that there's an easy button for just yet. Yeah, that I agree 100%. And it also depends on the categories, right? We're getting better on common protocols. We didn't have commonality on data standards, although we've tried as an industry, right? And Cornet and others. And, and I'll stay to that topic. We could probably go on for a while. But you still got certain categories on the hardware side that are completely proprietary protocol. It's just maddening still, right? And we do for each category in some ways. So, and it's amazing because that fight's been going on for a while. It's not like it's a, it's a new fight. But I, I, I agree. I mean, there's some great, there's a comment actually in there too about just the cost of development. And Joe, you said everything I would have said. And on the tail end, you, you got there. I wasn't sure if you were, I, I knew you knew it, but if it would come out. But yeah, you got to look at this long-term basis and, and truly look at the operating costs and maintenance costs of whatever scenario you're going through, right? In, in the scheme of things. And the other one I'd say is that as an industry, oftentimes, many of us think we're special. And Joe, you said this in the widget example. And the reality is we're so common at the end of the day than we think. Yeah. I'm in a, in a unique spot just given our format there. And now there's more commonality to it. But when you look at the company's growth and what we've done, we had to build, right? And, and the situation we're in, and we are unique, I'd like to say. I'm gonna contradict, I think, the, the uh, widget comment, Joe, in a lot of ways it takes us down that path to spend the time and money to build you know, these things out that really people hadn't had in place. But at some point, right, it'll become more common in a way like any industry segment where there's a value to it and you, you get parity and then you see branches and advancements and kind of cycles. So it's interesting. I'm glad we got to the interoperability point. I mean, I, I think it's one of the biggest challenges our side of the industry faces. You know, before I before I worked at Genzo, I spent some time in healthcare uh, venture capital, specifically healthcare technology venture capital. And the parallels are really interesting. And one of the things that's not super well known about um, the ACA or Obamacare, as it's sometimes called, is there are a bunch of provisions in there that actually constructed or encouraged interoperability of data between uh, healthcare providers and medical record owners. And that, that created a very, very vibrant startup ecosystem because all of a sudden you sort of knew what the parameters were, you knew what data you could get, you knew what people needed on, on the data side and that allowed for a, just a flourishing of smaller startups. And we just, we just haven't seen that yet in our industry. And it'd be interesting if we could spend a minute talking about what, what would be great if it were true. <laughs> so where, where is the interoperability problem truly? Uh, I think the interoperability problem is where Scott was alluding to it without speaking to specific, you know, manufacturers of, of particular systems. Uh, there is just a lot of legacy uh, systems out there that are closed systems. And, uh, and to be honest, uh, look, we, we also have to appreciate, right, that we're dealing with an asset class there, the buildings, you know, if constructed right, live for a hundred years. And so, you know, some of the technologies, we just have to accept that that's what it's going to be. Not every building is, you know, what's happening at National Landing. Like they're, you're dealing with buildings that are a hundred, you know, sometimes 200 years old. And so it, it's, it's a case of, there's still some manufacturers out there that have a vested interest in, in closed systems because of their position in the market. 
um, that will erode over time. And I think, you know, they'll, I think they're all aware of that and they're all working, you know, towards an, an open, an open system. Um, I think there's an entire industry that's, uh, you know, come out of all of this, which is, you know, the middleware aggregator type platforms that are effectively, you know, becoming the glue or the, let's call it the, you know, the power board that you can just plug all the plugs in and, and they translate that for you, you know, um, downstream or upstream. And so, you know, I think, I think we do need to acknowledge that, you know, there are buildings that are very old and, 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 you know, have, you know, 70, 80, 90 different systems. And in fact, uh, talking to a client today and they, they had uh, 146 different access controls uh, within the building and that's just one building. So to, to be connecting 146 or ripping and replacing, it's a significant capital expenditure and, and it's a significant, um, you know, impost on, on, on the building. Now, doing it, would it increase, you know, tenant amenity and experience? Absolutely. And it, but it, again, there's an ROI conversation and all the rest of it that goes with that. And I know we probably get to talk about ROI uh, in a minute, but that's, that, that's, the, that's the big question. Yeah. Joe, I thought you should name them. Actually, I think I think you should say them. <laughs> so, but I think Ron, you said earlier too. It all I think everyone in this call knows them. <laughs> knows. Yeah, I'm not going there. It all starts with the backbone and the fiber. And for so long, cross asset class, we let the closets go crazy, and we didn't manage the fiber and take control. And as an industry in total, we we all are right mm-hmm. in different ways. Still, there's some that that's not um, that's still not the case. Uh, but it starts there, actually. I mean, that's why you get totally dropping your fiber. And there's a value proposition, not just sort of a quality experience as well that, that falls in line with that. But the I'm going to say it, Joe, but not by name. Like, dash control space is a great one, right? It, although we've seen advancements, it's still a tough space, right, relative to panels and protocols. Um, although it's way better than it was 10 years ago, it still has a long ways to go. That That's usually the more office-given kind of specific category, right? It's hard. Yeah, I, I, um, I'll say, Scott, to your point about the closets, you know, it's, it is really incredible. You look at, um, frankly, I think in business as usual, what the vertical development teams would call low voltage designs, sort of an afterthought. It's, it's really not core. I think increasingly, if we all want to see a future that, that sounds like we're all in agreement of is like coming one way or the other, there's a secular trend towards technology in the built environment. It can't be an afterthought. Um, so we're spending a lot of time in JBG internally, just sort of revamping how we think about low voltage and how we think about the intersection points between the outside of the plan, so the neighborhood and, and our na- fiber network that runs across the neighborhood, every single street, north, south, east, west, and then what happens inside of the building. And being thoughtful about that is um, is is a ton of fun to sort of change how we, you know, how we might approach it. And hopefully what we end up doing is, is, is a blueprint, but I'll tell you some of our engineers and designers, when they go to a new building and they see a telecom room and they open the, the risers and they look, look at the closet and they say, wow, this is, it's, it's, you know, it's like buying a new car as compared to looking at, um, you know, a closet that's dusty filled with, you know, copper wires just spewing all over the place and, you know, all sorts of other things in these 40 or 50 year old buildings it's just the natural course of what has happened over, you know, decades. Um, and I think we just have to take a little bit uh, of a different, a lot of a different approach rather. And, uh, you know, I think just, just treat some of these, what used to be afterthoughts as, as more fundamental because, you know, I, I hear it from our, um, 
residential asset management lead, Tiffany, who I work with really closely. She, she's sort of the CEO of our residential business. And she always talks about how the expectations in the residential space sort of evolved. I'm not going to get 100% right, but she, she tells me, you know, back in the day, it used to be, you know, location, then it was finishes, then it was amenities, physical amenities, and now it's customer experience as defined by digital. And so I think we have to look at our digital um, finishings, call it, um, just like we would uh, the, the physical finishings um, that we, we all are, you know, sort of take for granted at this point, um, just given where we are in the cycle. Yeah. So before we move on to the next topic, I just do want to point out, you know, we, we, we'd happy to take questions. If you have questions, throw them in the chat. It's great to see people uh, engaging in the chat, but if you've got specific questions, send them our way. Um, one thing, as Joe, as you mentioned, I do think we spent a little bit of time talking about ROI, how you measure value, things like that. You know, it's, it's, it's come up here and there. Um, I, I am curious. I mean, I'll, I'll, return on investment is a well-understood financial metric, but there's a lot of interpretation into what you put into those uh, numbers to, to uh, drive that number. And I think particularly what I've seen as being an interesting wrinkle is, you know, um, Bardan, you're, you're a REIT. You know, REITs have a lot of rules, what they can spend money on because you're you know, investing other people's money and you have a fiduciary duty to manage that money well. Um, you know, Scott, you're in a slightly different position. You were venture backed and there you've got a, you know, a set of uh, stakeholders and now you're publicly traded. Now you've got a different set of stakeholders. So, you know, it's, it's, I think a little bit more of a tricky question about what's really the right way to frame the investment question. So I'd love to hear you guys talk about that. I think, I mean, to start probably true for all of us, there's more demand than capacity, but it's true for anything anyone does, right? Like none of us have unlimited resources or capital. So there's sort of a best use question that, that comes into play first. And then I think the second one, James, is yeah, how you look at it. And we, the way I do, I've got four buckets. And I think what puts me in a unique spot is I drive a lot of revenue digitally. So traditional real estate, you could argue, might originate on awareness, but it's not really driving revenue. If my tech goes down, I, I have economic issues. Um, so I look in the four buckets, look at a revenue driver. Like, is, am I really going to bring in more revenue if I spend the money? Then there's the below the line, my saving money, right? Then we think about net promoter score is really important to us. And we see the economic impact if that number goes up and down, like relative to renewals or other factors. So will it affect positively NPS? And then there's the risk management question. Like it's just, it may not make any economic sense. There's no return on it other than if I don't do it something bad could happen or just it could create an issue sort of downstream. So I, we look at it across those four buckets and then actually going through a, a rolling multi-quarter process for how we evaluate where that capital is because things change and things come up, um, some good, maybe some might not as good. And, it, and it's on that basis. And we're pretty formalized about it, actually. And I don't know, I mean, my involvement with Works really been, I've been here for about a year or something, but I mean, it's, it's pretty well disciplined. It was that way pre us going public uh, in November and obviously you know, remains the same. And I'd argue regardless of what side of the table you sit on, on public or private, as an exec in any company is a custodian of that, right? We have the duty to anyone, whether it's the investor or the individual owner or the shareholders to, 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 to do the right thing. Yeah. I, 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 
I mean, they, those four buckets are the same buckets we we look at, Scott. And I think, you know, I, I probably add one, which is is probably covered by your buckets anyway, which is just that strategic viewpoint of, you know, are you going to invest because it might, for instance, impede your competition or or somehow elevate you, which again is is maybe not a direct revenue driver, but it certainly might be a competitive, um, you know, a competitive advantage uh, proposition. But I think it is really interesting, I think, in terms of whether you're like, I, I don't think the traditional ROI model, particularly when it comes to real estate, which is probably more that, you know, the concept of IRR and, you know, you know, is the, is the return going to be, you know, higher than the cost of capital? And of course, cost of capital today is, is not, you know, not as expensive as what it once was. And so it, it might be a lesser hurdle, but I think, um, I think sometimes certainly as, you know, as an app developer, um, speaking from that side of the fence, as opposed to a procurer of technology services, I think um, we still have to tip our hat to the traditional ROI metrics and the IRR type metrics. But I think, again, coming back to, you know, Scott, you mentioned it earlier, and I, and I did as well, that longer term view of, um, you know, it might not necessarily, you know, net you out in that first five years, but if it does something that in 10 years time, that you know is you know, and you're in the game for that period of time, then it 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 might make sense. And so, um, I think being rigid about it is, is not going to help you. But I think um, I think all those buckets got talked about are, are, are very valid. Yeah, I and mean, I'll just just echo. I mean, I think we for us we underwrite our investments um, as investments, and in some cases, our digital infrastructure, you know, in many, many, many cases, our digital infrastructure at neighborhood scale, sort of accretive on a standalone basis, but prop tech, urban tech, you know, technology deployment in our buildings, um, I think kind of really just parallel, uh, how Joe and Scott were describing it. I think, especially in residential buildings, it's, it's about amenitization and really measuring, um, tangibly how we feel based on data this any given technology is going to improve the experience and either um, reduce turnover or or push rent um, and so just being really thoughtful and putting it on paper as to how the economics work um, is really important and I will say you know I know we talked about it earlier but especially when it comes to technology just understanding the total cost of ownership um, across the life cycle of a deployment is obviously critical as opposed to just thinking about it as a, a capex all right i bought a bunch of tech great well unfortunately that's not how it works um, and, and there usually is ongoing cost um, that that has to be really critically thought about yeah so we're, we're nearing the end i thought we'd do a kind of like a quick quick fire uh you know where, where do we see this all going round um Obviously, you know, prognostication is dangerous. Making predictions is even more dangerous, especially when they're being recorded. But, uh, you know, let's do it anyway. So uh, who wants to go first? What do you, what do you, where do you think this is all headed in the near term? I, I, I mean, me personally, I think, I think we're headed to, we're continuing down the path of eroding barriers within the workplace. And that, you know, to what Scott said earlier around, um, the worker or the individual being that that you know in power so to say 
Uh, I think that will only accelerate and continue. And I think that will lead to the barriers. And what I mean by the barriers, I mean, instead of a stereotypical tower with a tenancy and then, you know, with, with another tenancy and a, and a flex space over here, I think all those walls will go down and the fluidity within the building will be such that an individual, you know, whether they're working from home, working from flex, working from the office, will feel very, very similar. Um, you know, and again, it will just depend on, they'll take the seat that dictate, you know, that their type of work um, dictates for that particular day or time or period. And so I think that erosion of barriers, the continuity of um, individuals uh, really dictating the workplace and and the con like the concept of work, I think will only accelerate. And I think technology will enable that and amplify that. And I think um, you know it's an exciting space to be. In. Oh, that was well well said. Actually, I think to add. It's really going to create some unique challenges, not on the tech, but on the organizational operational side about how we support and enable that. So again, if we take even to stay with multifamily and an individual, 10 years, 20 years ago, it would have been an, an entire consistent category, conventional or assisted living, whatever. Now by unit, they're spinning it. And then Joe, your point, we're seeing that those walls will come down in office. They came down to retail a little bit already before between inline space and temporary tenants and card kiosks and pop-ups and that, that kind of stuff. And the operating challenges around that should not be minimized. It's a pretty significant shift in your world, Joe, for your firm yeah. as well. But literally anyone in real estate, I think, we're going to see that shift as well. So it's not just the tech is enabling it and providing these unique opportunities and ways to do it. I think you're totally right on the blended formats. And now we got to figure out, and real estate companies have to figure out how to better support it. So well, I, think, interesting. I, think, I think the irony of it was you were saying before about diversification you know, within an asset class, right? But ultimately what we're getting is convergence of all the asset classes. Um, you know, so we're getting diversification within office, i.e. it's getting more retail, it's getting more flex, it's getting more, um, you know, to be honest, even in some parts of the world, there's some living, you know, and, and some retirement and medical, um, you know, health related services within the tower. And so um, likewise on the industrial and logistics, you're getting, um, you know, you're now getting park and experiential and um, a little bit of retail offering there, which you never would have seen, um, you know, sort of five or 10 years ago. So um, I think there's that diversification within sector, but convergence of all sectors, uh, you know, to, to accommodate, you know, where that individual wants to be and, and, and the, the nature of work. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, just say, you guys, it's fascinating actually to hear from both you and Joe, Joe and Scott on, on space utilization. I know, James, you, you're an expert on all this too. That um, it is, doesn't flow in my blood, so it's always awesome to hear about it. For me, I think where this is going is um, really uh, uh, it will be a race, I think, if I was to prognosticate a race to uh, infrastructure which is hard to build, CapEx intensive and time intensive. Um, because, you know, so we sort of think back and say, well, you know, for me, I got my first smartphone in, in 2009, just 13 years ago. If we project out or look back and see how different our lives are now um, to 13 years ago, add to that, you know, Tim Cook is out 
in the marketplace talking about how augmented and virtual reality will be our main media uh, medium of, of interface rather than our smartphone by 2030. So you, you sort of start, start to look at history, projecting that out. And I think in 10, 13, 15 years, it's impossible effectively to imagine how our lives are gonna evolve, but we know that they're gonna be highly um, uh, dependent. Our lives are gonna be highly dependent on uh, wireless and wireline networks. And so um, I, think, I think where this is going is a pretty strong flurry to infrastructure deployment um, over the next, call it five, 10 years. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I would only add, you know, I think at least what I'm, what I'm focused on and what my team's focused on and one of the things that we're really trying to figure out is, you know, we've kind of entered a world that I like how you said it, Joe, it's kind of like, you know, that book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. So now, now we're in a world where you kind of have anything you want whenever you want it, you know? And if that's the case, well then what, you know, what should you do? And, and this problem of, hey, we've got tons of data about utilization and the conference room's yellow. So like, should I build more conference rooms? Like this is a really, really fundamental question. And we're trying to use all of this technology to help answer that question of what, what do human beings want and need out of the built environment? What should we make more of? What should we make less of? And I think that's going to be a really, really interesting transformation in the next few years because we'll finally have some of that data and we'll have it in a, in a much more timely fashion. Whereas before, maybe, you know, it's years after you've built the building that you figure out what's good and what's not. And we think we can get to that much sooner. So guys, I want to be mindful of everybody's time. You know, thank you everybody for joining. Thanks guys for joining, for, for being on this panel. Um, thank you to Cornet for, for bringing us all together. You know, I think if there are some questions that pop up afterwards, you know, filter them back up through the Cornet system. And I'm sure we'd be happy to, to weigh in. And um, yeah, have a great day, everybody. Thank you, James. Thanks, James. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. All right, guys.